Hey everybody and welcome to DCI number 28. I'm your host, Jonathan Miley. In this episode, Brian and I got to talk with Zach Burns, who is the lead developer on Chess 2, the sequel, which is obviously a chess variant that's been out for a couple of years, but it recently came to video game form. It was released on the Ouya just about a week ago, and uh, we had a really great conversation talking about some of the issues that have plagued chess for many, many years, and how Chess 2 looks to solve those. It sounds like a really interesting game, especially if you're into chess on a you know very high competitive level. If you want to find out more information about looting games, you can check out the links in the show notes for this page. If you want to find out more about Darkstation, you can do that at darkstation.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at darkstation underscore com. And if you want to subscribe to us on iTunes, we are the Darkcast. While you're there, give us a review and let us know what you think of the show. Finally, if you want to send us an email, you can do that at podcast at darkstation.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now on with the show. Thank you so much for joining us on the Darkcast here today, Zach. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing really, really good. I'm kind of glad that this interview wasn't last night because our editor told us about it at about 6.30. Uh, oh, wow. And I have an hour He's drive from, <laughs> from work. So it would have given me you know, all of like 15 minutes to write questions. So <laughs> I'm glad you were available tonight. I'm pretty glad it didn't happen last night, too. The game just launched about uh, 27 hours ago, so things have been nuts over here. I bet. So yeah. how many how many cups of coffee are you in? Uh, I just are we measuring got up in today, pots now? and oh, okay. uh, oh, right. this is my first cup of coffee. Mm. Excellent. Nice. Where, where are you at? I'm in Beijing, oh. China. Nice. I don't think we've talked to anybody in Beijing before. We've talked to... Um, some developers in Singapore and oh, yeah? in Australia, but not Beijing. Yes. I can hook you up with some more if you're interested. We got uh, substantial games. Pin Wong just had like an article on uh, indie games. Mm-hmm. Um, he's doing some interesting stuff. Know a few other guys. Awesome. There's a there's a small small following of of games here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, well, I guess before we kind of get started talking about Chess 2, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do um, on Chess 2? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my name is Zach Burns, and I'm an independent games craftsman. Um, basically, uh, like David Serlin. Yeah, yeah. Um, David Serlin did the, uh, the game design itself for Chess 2, and uh, he did an excellent job on that, and I discovered the game. Um, about two years ago. He had written the rules back in 2010 and just published it as um, like a free-to-download and free-to-play on your own chess set kind of thing. Um, but I really uh, enjoyed the game and I wanted to play against other people online and there was no way to do that. So I, uh, I just made it, I guess. Um, so Ludium Games is, is officially just me, but uh, there are a bunch of other contractors and friends who have who've kind of helped out along the way doing various parts. 
and that's that's pretty much it. Okay, cool. Where does the uh, the name Ludim Games come from? So Ludim is um, is two words mashed together. Uh, the first word is ludic or, or ludic actually is how to pronounce it from Latin, which means to play. Mm-hmm. And uh, second is is meme, which is like a self replicating idea. And and together this these two words as ludim have have come to mean like a fundamental element of play or fun fundamental like unit of of fun so or, or like an element of play like um like a rule in a game or something like that like what the the constituent parts of what makes a game okay nice um so you said you guys are are located or, or you're located in beijing um, how long has Ludium Games been around? Uh, about two years now. Okay, I think. I've so only you... been working on Chess Two for about a year and a half. But okay, yeah, two years. So is this your first game then, or this is our first game? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but is this spent the first like six months screwing around trying to write an engine, which was a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good to know. <laughs> Um, but just, is, for just just from a being alone standpoint, or or just in general? Uh, just in general. I mean, engines have got to the point now. I think where they're pretty general purpose, like Unity. Before, when per, you needed every last bit of performance in a game, you'd have to create a very specific energy. Uh, sorry, specific engine for doing separate things. Like a, what separated an RTS engine from an, a first-person shooter engine was like the camera angle. And you'd have to design the entire way that the engine worked around that minor difference. Hmm. Now we don't need that performance anymore, right? We've got Unity. Um, and just as a programmer, I don't know if I'm ready to make my own engine yet from what my background is. Gotcha. Um, so have you worked on any games before? Yeah, so I've been in the games industry for eight years now. Um, I started at um, Kush Games, working on the MLB and NHL 2K series, mm-hmm. um, and then went from there to make uh, sports champions for Zindiki Games, which was a, a PlayStation Move pack-in. Mm. Yeah. Okay, very cool. Um, so when you said that you kind of made the game, um, what what does all that entail? I mean, did you work with art? Did you contract that out, um, kind of what was entailed with, with making the game. So you mean uh, Chess 2 then? Right? Chess 2, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, so, I mean, getting started, right, um, there's, there's actually been like a surprising amount of work that hasn't been related to making a game per se, like contacting people, right, to like uh, starting with contacting David Serland, uh, creating a business arrangement there, uh, getting lawyer to look over the agreement it's all like very boring stuff but then um started uh mostly programming and um doing like the the lighting is one of the more major contributions i think that i did and like creating and defining the the overall style i guess be like another uh primary thing finding how to communicate exactly what flavor of um game Chess 2 is to the artists and to the um, sound designer and, and this this sort of thing. Okay. And and basically any like anything that needs to be done 
that I didn't hire someone for, uh, which I would try to avoid hiring someone for in the first place because I don't have any money. Um, <laughs> basically everything. Awesome. Um, now, you mentioned that uh, David Serlin created the rules for this game. Um, so, how is this game any different from those original rules that he published online previously? Nope, this game is exactly the same. It hasn't had any balance changes since then. It's been going right along. Okay. Gotcha. So, do you know what inspired him to make the sequel to Chess? <laughs> yeah. Um so he 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 enjoys chess, but um he has a background also in playing street fighter games. He's a competitive street fighting player and he was observing um one of his opponents. Um I can't remember the name of this opponent, but this this opponent is is famous for really getting into the mind of who they're playing against and really anticipating what they're going to do and just normally just destroys people because even if they know that he knows what they're going to do, their habits are so ingrained that they just do them automatically and he takes advantage of that mm. and um, by anticipating what they're going to do just you know counters it basically without without thinking. Uh, no one really knows like how this guy does that. Um, so he, he, he being Serlin really thought that that was interesting, right? this element of getting into the opponent's head and comparing that to a game like chess where you're just playing the board and not the man. Um, he, he, he decided that he wanted to try and bring some of those elements into chess, and that's really where the, the dueling mechanic came from. Um, but then while he was doing that, he was discovering all these existing problems with chess, like the draw problem um, mm -hmm. that... Among the the top uh, twenty players in the world, more than sixty percent of the games end in a draw, and that's like kind of boring and um, and and not very very healthy for for a competitive game. Um, not to mention not rewarding too. Like the the game itself rewards like inferior play sometimes. Like if um, imagine we're playing a game of chess, and at the end um, I have only a king. And you, you have a king and two knights, right? Like, you've clearly played a superior game um, because you're up by so much material. But that game is actually a draw um, because it's impossible for you to force a checkmate from that situation. Um, so the, the game like, kind of has these, these problems, and he, he set out to fix those problems. And they're, they're well-acknowledged problems, too. It's not like... Um, um, that was it was his idea that that chess was broken. It's actually right. pretty substantiated by like world champions Bobby Fischer, Capablanca, um, Emmanuel Lasker. All these world champions acknowledge the problems, and he he just set out to fix them in his own way. Very nice, very nice. <clears throat> so getting into chess too, then what uh, like like what is it? What's the fundamental difference outside of I know there's I, I believe there's three different kinds of, of pieces now, as far or rather three, three different kinds of armies. It's actually uh, six armies. Yeah, so that's one of the main oh, six. differences. Six, okay, three different kinds. Okay, gotcha. Right. So one of the problems with chess, right, is that um, the openings have become very rote and and memorized. Right. It can be um, in a in a high level game. It can be about twenty moves um, before the first 
unique move is even played. Um, and that, that's like a large percentage of the game. If an, if an average um, chess game is, is 40 moves or so long, and if, if the first 20 moves have already been played before, and then the last 10 moves are like endgame stuff, um, which is usually kind of memorized too, then that leaves like about 10 moves in the, in the middle, um, which is not very interesting, right? Um, or not as interesting as it could be. So the what asymmetric matchups does is it means that you never really know exactly how the game is going to start. Even if you pick your army, there are multiple armies that the the enemy could pick, right? And and to memorize all of them, there are there are 21 different possible matchups. So that's like way more memorization that you would have to do, which makes it basically impossible um, to prepare for a game so in that way the, that shuts it are the pieces fundamentally different in each army? Like, yeah, we have, yeah, they like, are. A, a, okay. Um, and each each army has like a, a kind of a core idea that ties it together and defines its strategy. So what you're going to be doing in the game is trying to like create a position on the board, which um, which plays to the strengths of the adva- um, of the advantages that your army cho- chose, right? And also um, diminishes the strengths of the opponent's army. So one army for example, is the empowered army. And what's cool about this one is that when a rook, knight, or bishop is horizontally or vertically adjacent to another, they gain each other's movement properties, right? So like on the first move, um, you could develop your rook by making a knight move because it's next to the knight. See what I'm saying there? I think That's crazy. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But, and, but that's only available when they're, when they're basically perpendicular. Right. So once he's made that move, then he's, he's lost that, that same, power. That same plane. He's right. back to a normal rook. He's back okay. to a normal rook until something then rejoins with him. Hmm. Uh, to compensate for that, the queen can only move as a king. Right. So it's got one advantage and then one disadvantage. Hmm. Um, so okay. with that, with that army, you're going to be trying to um, keep a lot of your pieces, right? Because the more pieces that you have, the the more combinations that you can have them uh, and play together with, and you're going to want to try to get them to work together in interesting combination. So does the um, kind of transfer of movement abilities, is that only with your own pieces or if you're adjacent to an enemy piece? That's just with your own pieces. Okay. Yeah. So that's one army. Um, another army uh, called Nemesis is pretty interesting, and this really focuses on like an attack against the enemy king. Um, so your pawns, what they can do, instead of being able to make the uh, double space jump at the beginning, they can make a one space move, non-capturing move, toward an enemy king. Right, so they can move like sideways, backwards, whatever, toward the enemy king. Um, In whichever direction the king is. Right. Okay. And the uh, the queen um, moves like a queen, but cannot capture or be captured except by an enemy king. So, like, other other pieces can't capture her, she cannot capture other pieces, but a king can capture her, and she can, like, check and checkmate a king. So everything is kind of directed at um, at the enemy king in this army. So it'd be like a, a, a checkmating army. Hmm. Wow, and, okay. And that, that's just two of them. There are four more. <laughs> right, there are, there are four more. Well, one of them is the classic army, which you already okay. know. Uh, so that, there, that there everything just moves them. normal there. So he went. Right, so, so he, he went through and he created like five additional armies to kind of shift things up and almost turn it into 
more of a, a strategy game than just a, a memorization game. Right, that's exactly what we're trying to emphasize with with chess too, is the 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 strategy that, that chess really promises, right? Like when you sit down to play chess, you know, what kind of a game is chess? Um, it, it claims to be a strategic game, right? but everyone is instead memorizing. So we took the, the parts that we love about chess and we made those parts more um, a part of the experience than they were before. So we'd really just like expanded on those things and tried to diminish parts that we didn't like as much. Right. So uh, another rule besides the the extra armies is the midline invasion rule, and this this rule is is really interesting. I think um, what the midline invasion rule says is that if you take your king and you cross the midline, then you win. Right. So there's like a risk reward thing. Normally you won't want your king to be out in the open, but if you can demonstrate that you have such a um, control over the board that you can bring your king that forward into the game then the game is yours, uh, in addition to, like, normal checkmates. Um, so what that does is it removes sort of the, the cooling-off period at the end of a chess game. Right? Like I said before, the last ten moves or so of an end game are, are usually, a, like, a memorized sequence, and the game has often ceased to be interesting at that point. Um, but with the midline invasion, there's a very sort of climactic struggle happening at the midline, and the game can end very suddenly and very, um, very powerfully there at the end, making making the whole course of the game from beginning to end very interesting and different every time. Hmm. So, is, is that a constant rule, or you can play with that rule, or not? That is, is that... one of the rules. Okay. Like any other. Sure. Are they uh, it's, just out of it's a great curiosity? Cool. I don't stuff know like that. Is that anyone... adjustable from? Is that adjustable from like the uh, the options menu? If you were playing somebody, you're like, okay, we're gonna turn off the mid invasion rule, or you know, we wanna, or are there like kind of house rule variations available, or is it still very, very strict to what Chess Two has kind of put out there? Well, I don't, I don't think that anyone would actually want to play without the midline invasion rule. It's just like a really fantastic addition to the game, in my experience, and the people who. It sounds it. it sounds really, really nuts, and, and I mean that in the best, best way possible. Because just <laughs> just thinking of my experience with chess, and then and you know just kind of knowing knowing the little bit I, I do about championship chess and how it does come down to such no, uh, just uh, rote memorization to 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 picture almost uh, like a race at the end for two kings to see who could cross the midline first. While all this, you know, it, it's it's almost like 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 war on a chessboard. It's it sounds it sounds crazy and it sounds exciting, which is something that you don't really ever think of with chess. It is it is crazy and is it it is exciting and it is war on a chessboard. Like you said, it's what it is. I think like the experience that chess is promising to deliver in its in its message, um, but doesn't actually deliver when you're playing the game. Um, so I, I don't think anyone would actually want to turn off this rule. Um, it's 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 one of my favorite parts of the game, and and like for people that play it too, they they really like it. So like in in chess, right? You would you would often sort of castle your king, hide him back, and even uh, 
maybe keep like a rook back there, a little wall of pawns, maybe Fianchetto, the bishop, and knight or something. You keep them all tucked in a corner and then go play the game with half of your pieces. Um, sort of trying to, to, to go and invade uh, the enemy. With chess 2, with this midline invasion rule, you really want to get everything active into the game as much as possible. So it makes for a much more sort of dynamic, uh, sharp, aggressive experience. So far, everyone that plays it loves it. Anyway, yeah. Awesome. Uh, but, yeah, there's another reason not to make the rules configurable, I think. And that um, the, the game is new, and the game is an indie game. And uh, although right now, I, I just I played a couple games this morning online, and the, the, the wait time for playing a game isn't very long right now. But the more options that you have, the more you segment your player population, mm-hmm. right? So... Um, if we had the midline invasion game and the not midline invasion game, these people are waiting in different queues to find a match. So that means that on average Absolutely. they have to wait okay. twice as long. And then when you add another option for like time controls and then another option for ranked or unranked and then however many options, um, the game would kind of destroy itself uh, through just these options, I think. Um, so right now, while it's, while it's kind of a new game at least, I think it's the, 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 in the best... Um, interest of everyone to just have like a one unified experience. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Are there any uh, timing rules or anything like that? Do you have X amount of time to make a move? Yeah, the game plays with uh, Fisher time, which okay. is just a very popular um, time system. You start with uh, 25 minutes, and every time you make a move, you get another 15 seconds on the clock. Gotcha. So it's, it's pretty generous. Mm-hmm. Um, but it like you can have a, a deep and thoughtful game, but it doesn't really run on forever either. So mm-hmm. yeah. eventually, there will be a hard stop. Mm-hmm. Now, with with such fundamental changes to the the very game itself, what made you guys decide, or 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 um, what what made you decide to go kind of the sequel route and, and go with Chess Two rather than than name it something else? War Chess. Death chess. Um, Death chess. I don't know. That might be partly just uh, Sterling's personality, but for for me personally, I think like he did it facetiously in some sense. But I think mm-hmm. that the name is actually kind of justified. Um, there are about ten thousand chess variants, um, and a lot of these exist simply because it's very easy to come up with a chess variant. Like someone thinks, ah, oh, I'm gonna put chess on a circle or something um and it really doesn't consider um whether or not that game idea works or like chess with three players in particular would work terribly um <laughs> and and they it, people come up with many of the, these ideas and publish them and um so the chess community um rightfully so when they when they encounter these chess variants they they kind of shut off immediately just because they're being they're used to being bombarded with really bad chess designs um but this particular variant is the only one that i know of that really looked critically at what are the strengths and weaknesses of chess and how can we actually improve on that experience um and really fix the problems in a novel way um and did so across the board, I think. I mean, for me, playing the game really does feel like not not like a diversion from chess. It feels like um, I never want to play the original chess again. Um, and that, that's 
I'm not the only person to say this. There's a lot of reviews online to, to the same effect. Some some call it like the uh, the Empire Strikes Back of chess. I think someone said. Um, wow. Okay. <laughs> so it just it it the game design itself treats itself very differently from those um, those other variants, and I think um, it deserves a, be- a better name. I think it works. <laughs> it does work. I mean, uh, if nothing else, it got us a lot of publicity. Sure. Right? I mean, it, it, whether you love it or hate it, people have a reaction to the name. And uh, they say something. So then that gets other people curious. And then when they actually find out about the rules, they really enjoy it. So it is working for us, I guess. Now, um, I don't... Personally, play a ton of chess, um, but I've never really found it hard to memorize the uh, different moves that all of the different pieces have. But I know a mm. lot of people that have that just can't wrap their brains around remembering what each uh, piece does. And obviously, you know, a lot of thought has been put into making chess two just much more exciting, especially if you're awesome at chess already. Uh, by throwing in all these different variables and rules like the the midline invasion, but what sort of tools are there for somebody that you know isn't even all that good at chess but wants to play this because it sounds more exciting? Okay, um, so I, I would recommend that they try out the Wii version at least. There's um, kind of a, a bot that you can can practice against, and um, when when you pick up a piece, it does like the normal thing of showing you what squares it can move to. Uh, there's a tutorial in the game. Um, I think that the the game itself is is pretty accessible. I haven't had a lot of problems with people having difficulty learning it so far. Well, I guess um, that that you kind of answered it right there in some ways with you know with it being a video game when you select a um, a piece, you know it's going to highlight where it can actually move. Uh, right. support to being a you know actual physical board game, then you're having to physically remember all of that stuff. So. Right, and you can't really make any mistakes. Like if you forget right. to uh, to get a stone when you capture a pawn, well, the the game takes care of that for you. It just gives it to you, right? If you want to make a move somewhere and you can't, well, then the game doesn't let you. So th- there's not really <laughs> a big problem there. Sure. Uh, now you just mentioned getting a stone for catch- capturing pawns. Um, and earlier you talked about the the dueling. Can you go into a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the dueling is is uh, what was added to give you a way of evaluating um, what your your opponent is going to do and seeing if you can anticipate that, as well as uh, strengthening some of the the fundamental ideas of chess at the same time. Mm-hmm. So um, what dueling uh, does and what its goal is is like uh, say that at the beginning of a chess game, maybe a bishop is worth three pawns, right? Three points or something like that. Uh, but that can change depending on the situation of the board, right? If um, if you have a lot of light-squared pawns, then a light-squared bishop is going to have decreased mobility because it can't actually go through those pawns, right? And it's going to be stuck, and it's not going to be um, contributing to your strategy, uh, contributing to your goals in the game very much. So then that the value of that piece... It's less. Um, So what dueling does is it allows uh, people to bid stones over the the values of certain battles in the game. Uh, 
And the way that it works is that when someone captures a piece, the one who, whose piece is being captured, the defender, has the opportunity to initiate a duel. Um, and then they, if they win this duel by bidding more stones than the one who attacked, then although their piece is going to be captured regardless, they also have the opportunity to capture the attacking piece as well. Hmm. Um, and so you start with three stones, um, and every time that you capture a pawn, you, you gain an additional stone up to a maximum of six. And then uh, when the duel happens, you each uh, hold some stones in your hand and then reveal them simultaneously. Um, so in a sense, you're, you're bidding the stones, kind of like, like a silent bid auction. Um, some people kind of compare it to rock, paper, scissors, or gam- gambling, or poker, or something like that. I don't find it like that at all. I think a, an auction is a much more suitable comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you silently bid your stones and reveal, and if the defender paid more, if they spend something to gain something, uh, then they can take that other piece as well. Okay. So if you bid more, if your piece gets taken and you bid more, then you take the other piece with you. Right. Basically. Okay. Right. Um, so if the other person wins, though, if the person that's attacking you, they bid higher than you, do they get your stones or what? What do they get? All the they all the stones. Well, well, they get to keep their piece. Okay. Um, but all of the stones right. that that are bid are immediately removed from the game. They're spent. Ah. Okay. So, so that so you adds have the, to be the, sure that you want to gamble that. I wouldn't really call it a gamble. Um, right. It's more of a of a valuation. Like most duels, um, go down in a pretty straightforward manner. That um, one one person wants to uh, grab a piece. One person doesn't care about that piece, maybe. And then that you spend something to get something, right? If you if you spend more stones, then you capture a piece, and that is essentially making an exchange of your stones for now for some battle later. If you're down on stones because you spend a lot early, then um, you're going to have trouble with captures later in the game. And that's, that's kind of actually what all of chess is, is about, is exchanges um, between the two players. Maybe one player goes for additional material, and another person goes for extra space or extra tempo, or they make this kind of exchange. The stones allow you to make another kind of exchange between each other, maybe a material now for stones later, or something to that effect. Okay. It makes it sound so calm and intelligent. I'm used to playing cutthroat chess where it's to the man, and there's, <laughs> the there's man. blood left on the table. <laughs> you make it sound very very calm and, and chill and between two friends instead of two... Oh bloodthirsty enemies that are charging the midline. This is... <laughs> I don't want to play chess with you, Brian. Um, just, just saying. There's nothing wrong with me. I understand that you know, when you leave the table, you, you leave the table. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I end up being a pretty aggressive player on the board, actually. But uh, when we're away from the board, that's different. <laughs> so what made you go for uh, the Ouya? Yeah, so the Ouya is is unique, um, and for one thing that's really interesting. Okay, so we can we can talk about the game design of Chess Two all day, right? But we're not really going to understand it until we play it, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like Kotaku said, like it's more like chess than chess. But what does that even mean? Like, I saw that. Is... <laughs> I saw that, and I was like, I I don't know what that means. <laughs> right, I I know what that means. Because I, I've played the game, and they know what that means because they've played the game. 
But to really like understand the sort of wealth of possibilities that the game gives you, uh, you have to sit down and play for yourself. I think games as a medium communicate something that like text or video or images, even even this audio of us talking, we can't communicate, right? Have you ever like played a board game or some other game and someone explains the rules and you're like, what? Well, I don't understand this at all. But then you play the game uh, for a few minutes and then all those systems kind of click in your head, right? There's like something that we understand by doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just how our brain works. And that's why uh, games as a medium need to exist, right? Because they can communicate the, uh, things that other mediums cannot. Um, so what, what, what I'm getting to here is that I think like chess 2 is, is kind of a, a crazy proposition to a lot of people. Um, and it's something that you really need to try before you can really understand and know whether or not this is something for you. Um, the Ouya is unique in that um, all of the games are free to try, right? Um, and so when a player sits down in front of the Ouya, they're in the mood to, to try a game. I know myself because I've done it like a hundred times now. Um, there's that free download button and it's just so easy to press. You know, I skip the skip the text, skip the images, just free download, try the game. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's pretty important uh, for a platform um, with such uh, for, for a game that's kind of audacious in its by its nature. Okay. A- any plans to release it for any other platforms? Uh, we haven't announced any any plans. Okay. Any hopes or dreams? <laughs> um, we haven't announced any hopes or dreams. <laughs> Well played. Well played. <laughs> a master chess move if I've ever heard one. Okay. So I, I have to ask, uh, this is the question that's been burning on my mind ever since I heard about chess 2. Are we going to get a revamp of checkers? Revamp of checkers. I, for one, would not be very interested in a okay. revamp of checkers. Um, you can ask Sterling though. He's the game design guy. Okay. Um, but I I doubt it. Um, right, what right, what Sterling's working on right now, and I can give a shout out to because it's it looks pretty interesting. Uh, he's working on a game called Codex. I don't know if you guys have played uh, like collectible card games before. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I like the ideas behind collectible card games. Right. Like you you get to sit down, uh, construct this interesting deck with a. Uh, um, unique twist, right? And then um, see how your your gimmick in the constructed deck kind of uh, plays a- out against the opponent. But the barrier of entry there, just like collecting those cards, spending like a thousand dollars on a game to have a a playable tournament deck, is not cool, right? Um, or <laughs> no, or, it's not. <laughs> no. uh, or for grinding in um, like a computer version of the game, spending a thousand hours instead of uh, dollars is also like kind of a crime against humanity. I think um, to waste people's times like that. Uh, and Serlin agrees, right? He what he's been working on is a configurable and customizable, but not collectible card game um, that you just buy the entire game at once, and it has the same kind of depth that you would experience from playing one of these um, other collectible card games. And you can you can enjoy that without like making it your lifelong dedication uh, just to play this game. 
cool. Is it a is it going to be a physical card game or? Yes, that's going to okay. be a physical card game. I, I bet there's also going to be a digital version too. Mm. Uh, okay. But we're starting with the physical. Cool. Very cool. That is very cool. It's I, having played uh, digital card games. There's there's not quite the. Uh, Almost the, the like the tactical feel or or the the feeling of actually losing something um, when you actually are, are kind of sitting across from somebody kind of staring them down and mm. and playing with a physical card. So yeah, that, that sounds pretty neat. Yeah, I, it looks to be really fun. I've read some things about the game. He's got some really interesting ideas that he's putting into it. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to that. But that that'll come before Checkers too. <laughs> All right. I wasn't really expecting a checker. On the two. horizon somewhere, checkers two, <laughs> first collectible, you know, first customizable card game. Okay. All right, Brian, do you have any more questions before we head to the end game? No, I'm good. I think we can go uh, go with our end game questionnaire here. All right. Um, so, uh, like, like uh, we kind of explained at the beginning, um, we'd like to end with a with a little bit of a questionnaire. It's inspired by the uh, Inside the Actors Studio, uh, where Jan. Lifton kind of asks his 10 questions at the end. I've only got six of them. Um, they start kind of easy. They get a little harder as we go. Um, okay. But they're more geared toward just you and, and kind of your experience with games. Um, sure. So the first question is, uh, who's who's your favorite protagonist? Protagonist? Protagonist. Like, like a, you know, like in, a, a good game guy, character? In a, in a video game character, yeah. In a video game character. Uh, do I have as long to answer these questions as I want? And then we can like as long as, as long as you need. No, we're using a Fisher rules, so we've right. got 25 <laughs> minutes. Uh, as soon as you answer it, we'll add 15 seconds to the clock. Well, I wasn't sure if you guys edit the audio later or not. Um, okay. Well, we hmm. can. I mean, you know, if you have to go get another cup of coffee to come up with an answer, that's what we can, <laughs> we can deal with that. But, well, you know, no, but, uh, I mean, we also found just going with your gut, too. Generally, we, we'd say that and somebody's already got an idea. Even if they, they don't like it, that's the one they go with. Okay, so the first thing that came into my head before I knew the video game character was just Jonathan Blow. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, the Jonathan creative brain and favorite. the uh, the inco- the upcoming witness. Yeah, so Jonathan Blow is my favorite video game character. <laughs> you know what? I'll accept that from Jonathan Blow because yeah. he is a character. He is. You cannot play him yet, but maybe accepted, maybe uh, he's uh, playable. Right, he might be playable in the witness. We don't know. <laughs> so maybe maybe that is. Jonathan Blow. He is the witness. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, honestly, not at all. Wouldn't be surprised at all. <laughs> all right, so, so I think actually, the... Jonathan, go ahead. Jonathan, no, no, Jonathan Blow, I'll accept it. I'll take it. So now I'm going to flip the coin, and the second question then is, who's your favorite antagonist? And since we've opened it up to, to Jonathan Blow, I'll take any kind of antagonist Zynga. now. <laughs> really? Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Why? <laughs> Because they, okay, so games for me are something that's very important. Um, I believe that that games play a fundamental role in the development of a person, and especially intellectually, where um, they can provide a, a safe place to explore interacting systems and see how those uh, work together and see how to um, exploit those systems. Um, and and that, to me, is is as valuable as reading nonfiction books, right? And so when I create a game, I try to respect the, the player. 
I try to respect their time, and I try to give them something that they didn't have before playing the game. Zynga, I think, and and really, the, by saying this, I'm kind of beating a dead horse. Everyone already knows this. But they they don't seek to give anything. They seek to take. Um, they t- They want to take your time. They want to take your money. They want to take your friends list. They want to... They they just want to take your life away without giving anything, um, and I, I it even kind of confuses the conversation. I think like when I when I talk about with someone, oh, I make video games, and these um, kind of time wasting um, blasphemies are and not, not just Zynga in particular, but they're kind of um, something to point at, I guess. Um, when these blasphemies are so popular in the market, um, you have to step back in that conversation and even kind of like describe what it is when you say I make video games. Um, and the, the I think that the confu- the conversation is even more confused now than it would be otherwise if they didn't exist. Um, not to mention I think that they're just a detriment on society. So when I ask the next question about your least favorite kind of overused element in games, would it be fair to say that microtransactions are towards the top? I don't think that microtransactions themselves are evil. Um, So something that's come under a lot of fire recently is actually the monetization model in Chess 2. Um, And the way that that works is that you start with some number of uh, crowns. You start with 240 crowns, and you spend crowns to play online. Um, So all the offline play is free. Tutorial free, uh, play against the AI free. uh, It's free to play against your friend on the same couch. But if you go online um, to play a ranked matchmake game, that costs um, like 10 cents or something, some silly small number. Um, And people are reacting really negatively toward that. And I I thought when I was making it that um, it was kind of doing something that was in the player's interest and very uh, progressive. And um, I was hoping that more games might do this in the future because instead of charging for something that's um, second to the game, like example for charging for like skins or some cosmetic element or... Um, or an advantage in the game, something like that. I'm cha- I'm charging for what I think uh, the best part of the game is, right? Getting those, um, getting that high level play at, or at your level against um, some opponent somewhere else in the world, getting that great game in. It's the gameplay that I'm trying to charge for, even though it's through a microtransaction. Um, and the reason that it is a microtransaction is is just that I think that different people are going to respond to the game differently. Some people will want to play very casually, and some people will want to play um, very seriously. And for someone who pl- who plays the game very seriously, about $20 will get you like a lifetime's worth of chess too, like playing every day for the rest of your life. Um, but instead of just charging everyone $20, there's the option for that casual player who just wants to play... Um, for six months or three months, or like for me personally, I'm tired of like spending sixty dollars on a game, and then finding out that I only really played it for for ten minutes. With this, it gives you enough free to try that you can kind of decide personally what kind of a player that you are, and then um, respond by buying as much or as little chess two as you want. Um, 
And I think that it also kind of aligns the, the developer and player incentives, right? Like, I want to create a game that you want to play more. Um, and you will only pay if you actually do um, want to play the game a lot. Um, and I, I think that's a good system. It does use microtransactions, but what it really comes down to, what the enemy is, is not the difference between like paying once or paying with microtransactions. The enemy or the or the friend is really the intent of the developer. I think um, the system in Chess Two works well and respects everyone involved because the intent um, was to create a system that is not exploitative. It's not. Um, not really um, a problem for anyone. It's not trying to take anything from you. It's trying to give you something, um, but you have to support the developer in order to to get that. Um, so yeah, it, it comes down to intent much more than it does like microtransactions. I think. Okay, so with that in mind, since obviously i read that wrong uh what what would be your least favorite element in, in or most overused element in video games uh grinding at any time where okay. you are 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 wasting someone's time like that is that is like horrible i think um to 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 say to someone like you 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 have nothing better to do um, then spend six hours to get this sword with a bigger number um, so that you can enjoy the, the game that you paid for or something. That just is doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, like, you, you value the player as so lowly and, and when you're creating um, a grinding thing, which is, is usually just for your own benefit, to make the, the game seem longer so that you can have a number up on that review score or something when actually it's detrimental to everyone involved. I hate grinding. No problem. All right. Um, next question. Uh, if you could force uh, Sterling to re-envision another classic game, um, what would you have him work on after the uh, the, the card game? Okay. Uh, he actually, he just released a game called Pandante, which is pretty interesting. Um, so Pandante is another um, take on poker, kind of. He like he didn't actually with this one set out to fix poker, but then everyone who reads the rules um, feels that way. Uh, so poker is is also kind of a broken game. It's a very good and very interesting game, um, but it's another game where you sit down and then your expectations for the game are not necessarily how the game actually is. So let me, let me clarify. For poker, there are two different types of games that people might think it is. The real poker is a game where its strategy asks you to fold your hand very often. Um, they don't show this as much like on TV, but the high-level players will spend 15 to 20 minutes doing nothing before they even stay in a hand long enough to see the flop and then fold again. And like the big hands only happen every couple of hours or so, um, so the the real the real poker is like a very mathematical, very calculated game with a lot of waiting, um, where you're not actually playing most of the time except to watch other people, which is kind of plain. Um, and so that that's the the real poker. The other poker that people want it to be is this kind of uh, game where you sit down with your friends, 
um, and bluff the night away, laugh, uh, have a couple drinks. Um, you, you know what I'm saying there. Like mm-hmm. the, the game is promising to be two things. One of the things that it is, and one of those things is interesting. One of those things is not. Um, so this uh, Panda version of poker, it goes that second route of being an interesting game that you can play with your family and people actually have fun instead of being like this very intense thing. There's a lot of staying in uh, the hand, like a lot of people actually play most hands. Um, there's a lot of bluffing. Um, there's a lot of smiling. It's just it's just like a really fun version of, of poker. Cool. Okay. So is there anything else that you'd like to see him kind of take a hand at? Because it sounds like reinventing things like this is kind of his bag. <laughs> Maybe. Well, some people say that, and rightfully so, I guess. Um, okay, so what game would I like him to do? I'd like to see Tower Defense redone. And I, I actually, I'm, this is kind of a cheap answer, because I'm thinking about doing it myself. Um, <laughs> I'll accept it. But uh, well, a, a game a game designer doesn't usually think of games for other people. But whatever. Um, so with tower defense, I think like when you approach tower defense, you think it's again going to be a strategy game um, where you create these like little mazes, and then but that becomes like very, um, very repetitive and very slow and at some point either your tower construction like either breaks apart or or gets advanced to to the game so that it becomes boring or something um but the the game that i imagine tower defense to be is more of a strategy game so i'd like to see kind of a a puzzle open world approach um to to tower defense where you're kind of exploring and then like there are these challenges that you need to kind of answer and the and the challenges would reveal the fundamental nature of the tower defense universe like um how how different enemies and different towers kind of interact with each other um and what interesting things happen from those systems so i think that's what i would like to see but uh, yeah i guess this doesn't really count either because like he he mostly designs analog games and then people make digital versions out of them so I don't know if he would take that one. There, there was like a tower defense board game that I picked up, and it wasn't good at all. Um, so if he, <laughs> I can't if he even could do imagine that. how that would work. <laughs> yeah, it didn't. It, it wasn't fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, good lord, no, no. I, I'll, no, I'll definitely take that one. I, I'd much rather hear what, what you'd prefer to do rather than than what he did. But it it seemed that he was kind of the 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 mass the the end mastermind as far as like redesigning these these. Uh, these important games as far as as just a like a historical perspective you have poker you've got chess um so uh, you and know. you've got go but i don't yeah, want him right, to redesign exactly. go go is already fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants a redesign of go like next question um if if you could do anything else any other profession with no restrictions what would you like to try no the answer is no. No, it's 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 there. There is no other profession for me. This is what, this is what I think about all the time. This is, I've I've been thinking about making games. I've been making games since I was maybe twelve years old or, or younger. I, I like, 
this is all I care about. Not not Never like all I care, but, but as a or professional wrestler. <laughs> no, no, not, absolutely not. I think this is like the most the most important uh, work that I can be doing right now. Awesome! It took fifty interviews, but you you're the first person to say that. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, final question. Um, when we when we come to the end of our uh, of our days and we approach the gates of the mushroom kingdom uh, um, and toad looks at us and he's got the book of all of everything we've done. Um, what do you want him to say to you? Um, I have no idea. I'm, I'm... I guess just that the the world was changed through games, and I, I think that that is a realizable dream. Like I, where where I'm going after this um, probably is not the tower defense game. It's not redesigning an old classic. This is like a step on the way toward um, making games sort of as uh, prolific and as interesting as like nonfiction books. Um, I think that there are things that games, like like I said before, that they can communicate effectively that other mediums cannot. And there are some uh, important things, particularly like one example that I keep coming back to when I think about this is language learning. Language learning is very difficult um, right now. And I think um, that games actually can teach this in a way that videos and that uh, words cannot right now there is it's a really a struggle um, to teach language learning there are things that games can teach that other things can't that they're not trying to do in a real way there are language learning games but i don't think they count um most of them are basically glorified flashcards or something mm-hmm. if you're going to make flashcards just make flashcards because that's way cheaper uh to do and well, like what are you why are you doing that um but i think that games like, okay, so if you want me to answer this fully, do do we go into a big answer? Or? Sure. Okay, Absolutely. big answer. Yeah. Um, so imagine a language learning game where, um, I'll, I'll back up a little bit even more. Uh, personally, I've been trying to learn Chinese, and I I think it's very difficult for me um, when someone is is telling me what a word is to really internalize that. There are a few times that I can remember where I actually remember a word very well, um, even the first time that I hear it. And when that is, is when I figure out what the word meant for myself in the context, right? If someone says a sentence and I knew some of the other words uh, in that sentence and figured out from the context to fill in the blanks, there's like that aha moment because my mind is thinking about the problem in a completely different way. It is very active as as a a manipulator of the language in my head instead of being passive and like a receiver of the language, right? Um, and so the brain works differently when it's doing. But the problem with um, figuring things out on your own is that in real life, um, if you're just like doing immersion learning or something, you just get dropped into a foreign country and try to learn it. The problem is that... Um, 
those situations where you can actually piece things together don't occur frequently enough to learn quickly. Um, but a game is in a unique position where it can create a world um, based on a hierarchy of learning, right? That's like what a lot of these games actually are. A lot of the great games, even Super Meat Boy, for example, the first thing it does is it, it teaches you how to jump, and then it teaches you what a buzzsaw is, right? A, if, if, with <laughs> oh, a yeah, it does. Buzzsaw. But then, it, then it, it kind of expands on that and makes like a moving buzzsaw, and then it makes like a swinging buzzsaw, and it goes sort of up and up and up in complexity. Mm-hmm. It's a hierarchical system of learning. You can have a game world where you are figuring out um, the language from the way that the world is presented yourself without any of the words ever being told to you. And through figuring those out, I think, uh, my theory is at least, that that will be a faster and more effective way of learning language than has been uh, presented before. Um, and that's something that I'd like to explore. And I think actually there are a lot of subject matters that games could tackle if they actually just tried and applied the the knowledge that we've learned from platformers or whatever else um, to language learning instead of making... Um, education games edutainment games which is just like a package around something boring that mm-hmm. makes it like flashy with animations or something that's the wrong direction to go um, they need to explore their strengths and, and really speak to certain certain kinds of subject matter and so you imagine this in this language learning game it's kind of like a like, like a super metroid maybe um, except instead of collecting power ups right you're, you're collecting and your own skill, right? You're um, engaging with the world and getting better at something so that in order to progress in this world, um, you need to um, demonstrate your skill with the language, sure. right? So, like, um, I think the even a closer analogy might be something like Fez, right? Where, have you guys played Fez? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in Fez, yes. um, you learn a lot of things. Um, you, you puzzle out different things. I bet you guys still remember how the number system works in Fez, if you got that far. Do you guys remember how the number system works? Have you, did you get that far? I, I'm not good enough at that game I to get that far. I did not get that far. <laughs> okay, sorry. And I, I refused to look it up because I still yeah, go don't back look it to up. it trying to puzzle it out. So okay. I, I haven't gotten there yet, but I know that there's, that there's a, a, a reason to the madness. There is a reason to the madness. It's actually pretty clever. Um, so with with the, the my game, I guess a differentiation between my game and Fez is Fez is supposed to be difficult. Um, my game would be like using the same kind of skills um, and have the same aha moments, but much more frequently and um, hopefully like like you're meant to figure out the puzzle instead mm-hmm. of it being just for like the top uh, few percentage of the the players that make it all the way through the game, right? Um, so yeah, I I don't know. I, I think. You guys get the idea. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and that, you know that actually sounds pretty brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, that I'm kind of tooling around with, like as you're explaining it, I'm picturing different scenarios that that could work, and it's that actually makes a whole lot of sense. And the the, the self discovery of it, rather than being told of finding out that that clicks a lot of buttons as far as understanding that I that I could get behind. There's a lot of obstacles to making this game. Well, when it's like totally new, right? And I think that I could overcome. But um, as an independent developer, 
one of the difficult things is making content, right? We, we're strong as an independent developing community, I think, at making um, interesting game systems, but game content um, is much more difficult for a small team. Um, you need a lot of artists, you need a lot of money to make, um, to make worlds, right? Um, I mean, it almost broke Phil Fish. Um, right. And even that game, although, like, fantastic, I don't know if it's as ambitious as what I'm describing. Um, so I don't know if I'll be in a position to be able to tackle that game, but that's where I'd hope hope to be at the end of the the when i get to the end of the mushroom kingdom um uh, yeah that'd be nice if so if someone likes the idea if you're an investor listening to this podcast <laughs> what you've just heard is the have, elevator pitch <laughs> yes i've got a lot of ideas for this game sir and people are interested in it so give me your money and or just, no, just a whole bunch of you guys go buy go buy chess too We'll be all set. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, well, I believe that does it for our our interview. Um, if you want to tell the good folks at home where they can go to find out more information uh, or where they can go to download uh, their own copy of Chess 2, the sequel. Oh, yeah. Chess 2, the sequel is available uh, exclusively on Ouya right now. Um, it's right at the front of the Discover store, so you just turn on your Ouya... Um, and it's the first thing that you see. So go, it'll, it'll, I don't need to tell you. And they have a search function too. Um, but if you want more information about the game, uh, you can see our launch trailer at ludemgames.com, L-U-D-E-M-E games.com, and then um, click on Chess 2, or just search, search Google for Chess 2, the sequel launch trailer, and you will find what you're looking for. All right, awesome. And links to all that will be in the show notes to this episode. Uh, so I just want to thank you, Zach, for joining us today and talking to us about Chess 2 and Checkers 2 and uh, your your hopes and dreams for uh, truly educational games. That really does sound awesome. Um, cool. So yeah, thanks for thanks, thanks for talking, guys. It's been fun. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you very much.